The Global Story, with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. So we're in the studio. Uh, there's a lot of light. There's windows all around. There's loads of icons. Uh, and Sam is, is busy working. It's a winter morning in an art studio in High Wycombe in England. Dr. Irina Bradley is an iconographer, and she's about to teach her two young students how to create icons. And before they start work, they pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. They stand in front of a stunning icon of the Virgin Mary, which is one of Irina's creations. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the documentary from the BBC World Service. I'm Nastran Tavakolifar, and in this episode of Heart and Soul, which explores personal stories of faith and spirituality from around the world, I'm speaking to two modern-day iconographers, Dr. Irina Bradley and Kelly Lattimore. They use their icons to help people connect with their spirituality and with the divine. But the way they both do this is very different. I paint icons because it is um, my spiritual calling. And I started painting icons sometime after I was diagnosed with cancer when I was young. And uh, when my children were very small, age two and six. So do you remember how much gum um, Arabic we put in? Yeah, like 50p? 50p, exactly. Okay. Irina Bradley teaches at the King's Foundation School of Traditional Arts in London. It's also where she got her PhD, which was on the icon of St. George and the Dragon. Her work's exhibited often and was also shown at Buckingham Palace in 2018 for King Charles's 70th birthday celebrations. In fact, there's a half-finished icon in the studio that she's working on right now, which is a coronation gift for him. There is a sort of alchemy when it comes to the material you use. All the um, colours that we use are minerals from the ground. The gold itself... Nothing is synthetic in this process. It engages all your senses. like, And therefore, I think that's part of the divine too, you know, like being present, being present with things that have always been and always will be. So I feel there is a, a spiritual connection with that too that comes from the material. Now, let's do a quick recap of what icons are exactly. You all have definitely seen icons if you've been inside an Orthodox church, and many Catholic churches have them as well. They're traditionally images of Jesus, the Virgin Mary, the saints and the angels. They tend to be painted in a highly stylized form, using colors like blues and ochres and reds. They also use gold leaf. Often the subject is surrounded with a glowing real gold halo. And you can also find them in people's homes because they're used for prayer. 
Now, the striking thing about so many icons is that they're usually looking straight at us. That means the experience of gazing at an icon can be really personal, and they're often seen as a bridge between people and the divine. But it's not about worshiping the icon. The icon is used for worship. Now, what I mean by that is that icons are there to help people to connect with the divine, and that includes connecting with the divine and the light within ourselves. Icons are there to remind us of the light we all have, and they can therefore help us to see ourselves and our own potential for goodness. I love an icon of Saint George in 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 one of the Kremlin cathedrals.、Um, I can't explain why, but I feel this saint has been with me for a very very long time. What what was it about this icon that spoke to you so much? In icons,、um, it is the eyes. Which attract me the most, and、uh, the eyes are generally exaggerated. And it was the look, the way Saint George looked at me from that icon,、uh, it penetrated, I think, deep within my soul, and、um, I will never forget this look. So, so I felt that we are together. Would you say you felt seen? Yes, definitely, definitely. Dip your finger into、yeah. that mix. Yeah, I know it's quite, it's quite hard work. It takes two hours to do it. Today, she's working with two students, Ilaria from Italy and Sam from the UK. Irina is teaching Ilaria how to mix gold paint. Now this involves beating gum arabic and gold leaf into a paste using her finger. Because what you buy in the shops, they're not of the same quality. Sam is working on two icons. He's a thoughtful young man with a quiet and gentle demeanor. We're so sort of bombarded by the image, and it's a kind of image that's artificial. It's disposable, and we don't really. Take stock of just how overexposed to images we are compared to how most of our ancestors would have seen the world. But in all of this kind of、uh, chaos, I think people are drawn to something stable and solid, and that's offered, I think, in tradition.、Uh, in、uh, following traditional artistic practices, you have something kind of that's rooted in history, and it gives you an opportunity to sort of focus your mind. To really understand what Irene is doing in the studio with her students, we need to know what's brought her to this point, whereby she sees her role as an iconographer to be a calling. Irene Bradley grew up in what is now present-day Ukraine. I was baptized in secret、uh, by my parents. I lived in communist Russia. It was very difficult to worship in the open. And that's why my parents took me and my sisters on a train journey overnight to another city, and、uh, we were baptized there. We had to keep quiet about this at the time. Can you、um, describe a little bit how your family was practicing their faith, given that you couldn't be open about it?、Uh, my family believed in God, and、uh, but obviously、um, they didn't go for services for many years. Because unfortunately, and I don't know if it is a rumor, but this is what lots of people in the communist world believed, that some priests would report people 
and would deliver their confession to the authorities. So that's why it was very hard. Uh, one of my father's colleague uh, was um, sacked from his job because he bought a Bible in Jerusalem. Somebody reported him and he was gone. So it's it's hard for people. And um, at the same time, you know, I, I just, I, I always felt that uh, God was with me. So can you sort of paint a picture for us in terms of um, what role did icons play when you were growing up and kind of how common are they? We didn't have an icon at home, unfortunately. I, I wish we we did. My parents used to take me to fabulous museum like the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, for example. I also visited many cathedrals uh, in the Kremlin where the icons are in situ. And uh, it's just the feeling you one gets from icons is extraordinary. Can you tell us what led you to creating icons? Mm-hmm. Um, when I w- was diagnosed with cancer, my children were very little and I was young. After I was diagnosed, it was obviously a big shock. My mother advised me to go to a monastery, which was in Moscow, which had an icon of Pantakranta. It's a Greek word which means the queen of all queens and when I went to pray in front of this icon which is considered to be the one which helps oncology patients I was praying for recovery I was praying for my family for my children because uh, of, of course I was terrified anybody would be terrified when the youngest child is two years old and as I was praying I felt that uh, it was like a column of warmth went through me. I just felt it. You know, I'm a scholar. I have an analytical mind. I don't believe mambo jumbo <laughs> things. And uh, but but it was for me. It was very real. And um, although I was terrified of what was coming, I suddenly felt a sense of um, calm. And somehow I felt that I'm going to be all right. And although it was serious cancer, it was also an aggressive cancer. Uh, 19 years later, I'm still here. So it's um, it's quite incredible. And soon after this, I uh, was advised by one of my friends to join an icon painting school. What sort of spiritual experiences are you having when you're creating an icon? Since my encounter with an icon and this column of warmth which went through me, from that moment I realized I'm never alone because God is with me all the time. And I firmly believe in this. I feel at peace. Definitely feel at peace. Many iconographers carry out various rituals whilst creating an icon. They might say prayers before and during the time they're making the icon. Some might even fast. Irina does this sometimes, or at least she tries to abstain from eating meat if she's working on an icon. Traditionally, a lot of iconographers follow a very rigid pattern. And in fact, many of them will say that their icons aren't art at all, and that their role as an iconographer is to breathe spiritual life into the icons they make. Are you looking for Jesus? Go walk your neighborhood and you'll probably find him. That's our next guest. My name is Kelly Lattimore. I'm an artist and iconographer based in St. Louis, Missouri in the United States. I've seen his icons too at a church in America. 
They look quite different from Irina's because they look very modern. There are images of Jesus and Mary as black people and an icon of the Trinity as three women of different races. The icon I find most moving shows a couple and their baby making their way through rugged terrain at night, guided only by moonlight, and they look tired and scared. It's called La Sagrada Familia, or the Sacred Family. Pope Francis and England's Archbishop of Canterbury recently exchanged this icon. Well, so I grew up in uh, the suburbs of Chicago. I'm a pastor's kid. My dad is still as a pastor in a small Protestant denomination. Um, can you describe where the sermons and the prayers were taking place, just so we can kind of really picture it? And, and was there any art or any icons or anything in the places where people would be worshipping? We had all these speakers that were would be on, and so even if you were in Sunday school, or in the nursery, you could hear my dad's voice preaching. And so it was like projected in the entire building. And there was only a few pieces of artwork in the church that I had growing up. And they're all by the same man who we can talk more about, but his name is Warner Salmon. Art was very sparse in, in the church I grew up in. Kelly says that when he was a teenager, his spirituality was about transcendence. But this changed a lot in his early adult years when he moved to a farming community who grew food for food pantries. The work of farming was almost like going home, entering into the work of milking a cow every morning. And, you know, we are growing food for food pantries, but the act of like weeding a bed of carrots across from complete strangers and um, cooking meals with people who are food insecure. And what that really did is it really kind of brought my spirituality from transcendence more to embodiment, engagement, and action, that the ways that we use things um, is of the utmost spiritual significance. And it's within that context that I actually started doing iconography as well. So you've created icons of lots of great great figures, including great civil rights figures. Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, Maya Angelou, lots of people like that. Um, can you tell us why you wanted to make portraits of these people as icons? From what I can see, for the first thousand years of the church, the saints uh, were really people that were chosen by local communities. It was people that you knew. It was so-and-so down the road who had you know, taken care of the orphan and the widow. But then, you know, around the schism of the church and, and many other things going on, it's, it stopped being local communities and became the Pope who chose. And so I think that's really interesting in the sense that there's a lot of uh, communities and within the Episcopal Church, Martin Luther King Jr. is considered in their Book of Saints, really kind of taking these, these figures who really lived amazing lives fighting against injustice, uh, fighting for the, the orphan and the widow and the poor now, figures like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. You do paint a lot of icons that are people who aren't white. So I, I wanted to know a little bit about why you do that. The f first image that I can remember being in the church I grew up was called The Head of Christ, which is by Warner Solomon. It's also uh, called the Protestant icon here in America. It was given out by the Salvation Army to millions of soldiers during World War II. Unfortunately, in America, we and I think in Britain as well, so we locked Jesus into one image as a white, blonde, blue-eyed man. But if Jesus is white, then potentially God is white, and then authority is white. So how does that make 
someone who is white look at the person, a person of color, but then also has that a person of color then view the personhood of Jesus. And so, I mean, for instance, there is an old, older black woman here in America. She grew up in a predominantly white parish. And for the first 30 years of her life, she thought that black individuals couldn't go to heaven because all the depictions of the saints and Jesus were of white. One of his icons, which has caused extremely strong reactions, is in the style of Michelangelo's La Pieta. It shows George Floyd, the African-American man killed by a white police officer in the US in 2020, being held by his mother. It's called Mama, and it led to Kelly being sent death threats. It absolutely broke us. The fact that the last thing that George Floyd said was Mama just hit us. My partner, Ebby, said, you know, what, what is an image or something that we, an icon that we could create that would really cause us to have a, a conversation to really meditate on the sad truth that mothers and are continually losing their sons and their daughters who are unjustly murdered by the state now, just as Mary did um, 2,000 years ago. My partner, Ebby, quickly thought of the Pieta image, this kind of classical form and in the creation of that, we had uh, Mary figure holding the, the dead body of Jesus. And originally, Mary was looking at the, the dead body, the figure. But my partner, Evie, said, you know, what if we changed the, the eyes so they were looking at the viewer, almost to say, you know, what are we going to do so this doesn't keep happening? And with that image, uh, we had a lot of conversations within our community about it and a lot of prayer and thought went into the creation of the image. There was a lot of pushback against the image. Um, that having this traditional form and a form that's been in iconography but also in Byzantine work, the Pieta, but showing Mary and Jesus as black um, really shocked and made a lot of people uncomfortable. So the, the image was resisted. And we got a lot of questions. Um, is it George Floyd in the image or Jesus? But the most faithful answer that Evie and I could come up with was yes. It is Christ. But as Mary of Calcutta said, it is Christ in distressing disguise. Jesus said he could be found in least of these and those who suffer, just as George Floyd did. So therefore, it is George Floyd. It was stolen for, twice from Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., there were many people who uh, sent pictures of it being torn to us, and we got all kinds of spiritual death threats and, and real death threats from people across the country that re resisted. They, they just could not see the image, and they were trying to protect some version of God that they'd built up in their head. What does your father think of your icons? Uh, has it changed his own faith, practice, or journey or anything? There's particular images that now that I've done that he's really loved and he very much connects to. I think there's others that are challenging. Do you think your icons or his introduction to icons, even more generally, has changed his sermons or how he interacts with his own community or his own uh, relationship with God? I just hold out hope that people will open themselves up to new images of God as Jesus as a man of color or the Trinity as, as women or for our parents, we always hold out hope that they'll change <laughs> and um, keep growing. And I'm lucky to say that I see both of my parents continually just growing into their own people 
but within their spirituality, I've seen so much more of an openness and a willingness to observe and to try to understand in a ways that they didn't when I was growing up in their spirituality. Have you had anyone say to you, someone from like an Orthodox faith or anything, that you shouldn't be painting icons given it's not part of your own faith background? When I first started um, doing iconography, an Orthodox priest, a retired Orthodox priest, came to my cabin as I was doing an icon, and one that uh, I thought was very traditional, and all I had done is changed Jesus to be more of a man of color. And he told me to my face, that's not an icon. (laughs) And we talked for a long time, and he left, and it gave me the resolve after he left my cabin that was like, no, I'm going to keep doing this. Like, there's something here. You're listening to Heart and Soul on the BBC World Service with me, Nasran Tavakolifar. The global story helps make sense of the headlines with expert analysis from BBC journalists around the world. Social media has essentially siloed a lot of young men and women into different algorithmic bubbles. Men and women inhabiting the same environment in the real world, but very different ones online. One global story at a time, in detail, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. For those Russians who sympathise with Alexei Navalny, it will cast a, a very dark shadow. This looks like a message. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts. I'm meeting two iconographers, Irina Bradley and Kelly Lattimore, to hear how their faith inspires their work and their very different approaches to painting icons. I was keen to bring Irina and Kelly together to talk about their experiences as iconographers and what role they believe they play today. The three of us jumped onto a Zoom call where Irina and Kelly hit it off, immediately talking to each other like they'd been friends for years. What I, I think I like most about iconography is that, and I'm wondering if you would say this too, is it, it is a very communal art. And especially when you are getting given a commission, I think I'm kind of entering into this dialogue with various communities in a way that I don't think I would do necessarily with other types of, of work. And so the kind of the conversations that come about through, you know, like a St. Magnus or Dorothy Day, I think is um, not only a gift in terms of as a group contemplating that saint or the the visual representation of them that could come about, but then it's also been a gift to me in terms of understanding myself and God and that saint and then how I live. Yes, it makes um absolute sense and in this way I'm similar to you in terms of community work I was commissioned an icon to paint for St. Gabriel's Church in London and I came to uh, to this church uh, met the congregation and they were helping me to guild the icon so it was a real really wonderful spirit when the children joined uh, parents grandparents and then towards the very end when the icon was uh, oiled also in the church the the whole congregation was was there and helping me what do you both see in terms of your role and what you can do Um, especially because you've both talked about the sort of community aspect of your work and how it can change people's perceptions, uh, open their minds, uh, also help them to heal. 
I suppose when Kelly and I are there in the communities, what we're trying to do, and tell me if I'm wrong, Kelly, is to show that this particular sacred art is there for people to help people, to help people to cope emotionally, even physically, and um, and to end this unhappiness, to save people in a way. Uh, what do you think, Kelly? Absolutely. And I, I think it, it also, in our time, I think that it can potentially kind of show us where Christ is in our midst um, in maybe some places that we wouldn't necessarily think or see him otherwise. And I think the icon is often asking us to kind of look not only at ourselves, but also uh, those around us and um, the sacred lives and the image of God that is among us. And especially in times of, of war and famine and, and you know, so much um, kind of unrest, I think that the icon can also be a way to kind of recognize Christ in, in these places and in the least of these as well. Um, and that, you know, we too are icons of God and everyone is sacred in that sense. And so I think it is a, a way to really contemplate that as communities, um, specifically communities of faith, that the work can kind of point not only to God, but point us to each other. What uh, Kelly was saying so beautifully just now about um, people being icons as well, uh, which is very true, of course, because we were created in the image and in the likeness. But I think the message I would like to send to people, please do not forget that fact that it's not just the image, but it's the likeness. We all have that divine light inside. And this is what I see my mission in this world to bring this light out of people, to make this light grow, become bigger, and to share this light with the others. And this is how we can survive in these very, very uncertain times. So Kelly followed up a few days after the call, saying that Irina's ideas had inspired him. She'd mentioned a congregation coming together to help her gild an icon. Kelly's working on a COVID-themed icon in Atlanta, and he's hoping to also have the congregation gather to help gild the icon as a final act of prayer when the icon's presented later this year. You've been listening to the documentary from the BBC World Service. This episode of Heart and Soul was presented by me, Nasran Tavakolifar. It was produced by myself and Julia Paul, and the series producer was Rajiv Gupta. You can hear more episodes of Heart and Soul by searching for BBC Heart and Soul online, or you can subscribe to the BBC World Service's documentary series from wherever you get your podcasts.